0: We've got a bank stock hitting an all-time low and a beverage stock hitting a new all-time high. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jim Gillies. Good to see you, sir. Good to be seen, Chris. Thanks few things i want to get to but real quick we should probably start with first republic bank because shares are down nearly 30% i believe the big round number i saw was 100 billion dollars worth of deposits are no longer at first republic bank and it's not often that conference calls make headlines, but uh, I'll just quote one executive at First Republic Bank who apparently said on the call, given the events of March, we are withdrawing all previously communicated financial guidance. Please note, there will be no question and answer session following our prepared remarks. That's pretty breathtaking. And uh, the only thing that would make it more breathtaking, Jim, since I am not a shareholder of First Republic Bank, and I'm going to go ahead and assume that most people listening are also not shareholders of First Republic Bank. The only thing that would take my breath away more is if you tell me what's happening at that bank is going to spread to other banks.
1: This one's not good. And of course, in financials, uh, confidence is paramount. First Republic already didn't have a lot of market confidence behind it, saying effectively "no questions, no questions" and running away. Especially when you see your deposit base down, as you mentioned, Chris, about 100 billion, slightly over 100 billion. Uh, that's before the big U.S. banks uh, shoehorned in 30 billion. You know, your J.P. Morgans and your U.S. banks and whoever else was part of that, Bank of America, I assume. None of this is going to in. Inst- Still, any confidence that's presently lacking. The other, of course, the other thing is usually when a bank says everything's fine, that's usually the cue for people to throw up their hands and panic. So uh, you know, it's a bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't on this one. I'm afraid, but um, yeah, this doesn't look great. And they've they, they ramped their their lending in the quarter, so loans were up. Yeah, I'm presuming that's largely before the deposit flight. They've plugged that hole. They've gone from about six and a half billion, six point seven billion at uh, the start of quarter in short-term borrowings. That's now eighty point four billion. The long-term debt has gone from eight point six billion at the end of 2022 to about twenty-six point three billion at the end of Q1. That's mainly borrowing from uh, the FHLB Federal Home Loan Bank. I-, I just I can't get away from from quoting Stein's law. Here, Uh, Stein Law, of course, uh, Herb Stein, the father of uh, Ben Stein from Ferris Bueller fame. If something cannot continue, it will stop. I know it's very, it's very unique, but I've always, uh, I I like the simplicity of that. I'd be really concerned if I were a First Republic shareholder. I think they're going to have to find a, a willing buyer, and that's not great as far as spreading to other areas of the banking system. I think it'll be natural that most people will probably be on uh, kind of uh, tender hooks for probably this quarter, maybe next quarter, especially with uh, these larger regional banks. I there, I, I, I could give you a list of some pretty well-run, very small local banks that stick to plain vanilla lending and plain vanilla mortgage lending and what have you. That I think, absent any serious deposit flight, will and are fine. But the big, um, the elephant in the room is what have their members, what have their uh, depositors taken from all of this? And if they, if they decide to, you know, f- flee their capital from these small and local banks, uh, you could be the best run small and local bank. It's not going to matter. I congratulate America on uh, taking one step closer uh, to the Canadian banking system where we have uh, six very, very large banks that control everything. We're going to move on then.
0: Earlier <laughs> earlier this month, you were on the show, and I asked you before earnings season started, what was the company you're the most curious to see report? You said Medpace Holdings, a medical research company based in Ohio. They reported after the bell yesterday. Holy cow! First quarter report uh, profits much Higher than expected. First quarter revenue was a beat as well. Shares of Medpace Holdings up fourteen percent today. Uh, don't take all the time in the world for your victory lap, but congratulations on this one.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I I, I owe this one personally too, and, and and not a small amount. So I'm not. Uh, I am not unhappy with these results. The reason, and, and yeah, look, uh, the fantastic quarter. They had uh, a ton of. Uh, let's see where their records. They had uh, record revenue, record EBITDA, record uh, new bookings, record operating profit, record net income, and record earnings per share. So I suppose that's a decent quarter. That's all for for quarterly numbers, not just Q ones. Uh, they revised their guidance up. I still think they're sandbagging. To be honest. They have a book-to-bill ratio uh, of 1.28, anything over 1 portends future growth. So this this was a great quarter, and 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 one reason that they were kind of uh, why I was interested is uh, I really like the CEO here. He's he's the founder. He's the only CEO the company has had. He founded the company in 1992, Dr. August Trundle. He's uh, 66 years old now, I think. Uh, He's shepherded it from a startup through various private equity holdings uh, through the IPO in 2016, where he chucked in millions of dollars of his own money post IPO. Gotta love that. I uh, put about 150 million dollars of his own money into shares last year while this company bought back close to 14 15% of their shares last year. I mean sometimes they don't ring a bell at the bottom but sometimes they ring a bell at the bottom Chris. Um, and so what I was really interested in seeing here is you know Trendle's a very straight shooter and I my assessment of him at following this company for years now is he's going to sandbag. He's going to underplay what they're probably capable of doing. And then he's going to raise guidance through the year. And the reason I say that is because the last three or four years, what has he done? He's put out kind of tower guidance at the start of the year, and then they blow past it, and he raises guidance through the year, and they ultimately um, end up doing pretty good. Uh, and in this case here, um, at the start of the year, they were kind of uh, saying, well, you know, like a lot of our clients, uh, we had a lot of cancellations, requests for proposals are down for new studies. Uh, a lot of our clients are having difficulty finding funding, uh, something that, again, kind of came out of the woodwork when. Um, Silicon Valley Bank went down because, I guess, the perception some people in the market put together that, oh, the people who bank with Silicon Valley Bank are also, you know, biotech clients of uh, of Medpace, and so it sold the stock off for no good reason. Um, I think I had it in my Best Buys now, uh, I think in February or March, and Hidden Gems, which is the service I run. But, uh, you know, it was kind of a dower coming. It's like, well, you know, if our small customers leave us. Um, this quarter, uh, the prepared remarks from Dr. Trundle were basically hey, the business environment improved in Q1. Requests for proposals are up on a sequential and a year over year basis. The dollar value of uh, pending requests for proposal also improved significantly. Um, sequential improvement through January to February to March. There's only months of the quarter, uh, and they have continued to improve further to a relatively strong level in the first three weeks of April. Cancellations for prior work cancellations were down over 50 percent on a sequential basis from Q4 to Q1. Uh, the trends look favorable, and we are cautiously optimistic. Which if you followed Medpace and and Dr. Trundle for as long as I have, when he says we're cautiously optimistic, I think that stand up on your chair and cheer and you know spin your spin your rally towel over your head for those sports fans out there. Yeah, this this is a great report. This is a great quarter, and I don't think it's that frankly that expensive right now you know oh, and they bought back another and and they're actually very good at buying back their own shares like they when when the price is perceived too high they put their checkbook away uh, and when it's not they are quite happy to buy you know pay for pay, pay to take down their share count so they they uh, they made about 70 just over 70 million last year uh, last quarter in free cash flow which is actually a little bit low but they're always low in q1. Um, they spent about $120 million to buy back, uh, just over 2% of the share count. There's some option grants in the quarter, but they shrank the share count by 1.5%. All in all, just, just a great quarter. So, You
0: look over the past five years, shares are up more than 450%. This is a $6.5 billion company. Why doesn't yep. some healthcare behemoth come in and, and make them a godfather offer and, and uh, uh, add them to their portfolio? Or, is, or is, is your take that uh, Trundle's not interested in that because he's probably that is, had correct. offers before?
1: Yeah, that is correct. I, I I mean, I'm obviously not in the room, but I suspect this is uh, Dr. August Trundle's uh, toy uh, until he decides it's no longer his toy. And like I said, he is 66. He has been in charge since 1992. We'll see how long he feels like doing it. But yeah, I've, I've said for a while that I suspect the. The ultimate outcome is they'll get bought by a bigger player because they're not that large. But boy, it's been a fun ride uh, all the way up, and I'm hoping for more for the next few years. And Dr. Trundle, I hope you are. Uh, hope your longevity is similar to Buffett and Munger's. Real
0: quick, shares
1: of Pepsi hitting a new
0: all-time high today. Strong first-quarter results. They also raised guidance. A bunch of parts to the business, but you look at the thing that leapt out to me: the Frito Lay division in North America, organic revenue growth of sixteen percent. That is real impressive.
1: Um, r- rumor has it that you know this has all been driven by uh, Canada's legalization of marijuana several years ago, <laughs> because we certainly do like our salty snacks kicking around. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it it was good, good numbers, a good overall report. Uh, I know. Um, uh, they they did boost their guidance as you say, like Medpace did. I think their organic revenue as a company, so not just Free to Lay itself, but as a corporation, was over 14%. Uh, I think earnings per share, their core earnings per share, as they call it, uh, were up about 18%. Um, and the stock today is hitting an alt another all-time high price, and great for Pepsi investors. Here's where I'm going to throw a small. A small, just, just a cautionary tale. Just you know, it, it's it's not it's certainly not. Oh, this company's doomed or anything. Just just something to be aware of. Two things. Um, One uh, over the last decade, if you if you go if you if you have the uh, the tools to pull up and see what the relative valuation is, you pick your poison: price to earnings, uh, EV EBITDA. Yeah, stay away from EV revenue. But uh, so enterprise value EBITDA is kind of the, the first proxy that I look at, even though I recognize EBITDA is kind of you know a squishy number. Valuation ratios have trended up broadly over the last decade. And so you know, and, and every everyone likes multiple expansion. Few people like multiple compression. So just, just some to be aware of. You know, it's, it's some of the returns over the past decade have been driven by investors being willing to pay more for what PepsiCo is. Okay, I think it's gone. I'm gonna I make up the numbers. They're roughly right, but precisely wrong. I, I think they've gone from about 12 and a half times EBITDA at the start of the last decade to about 17 and a half times EBITDA today. So just you know, if, if if it were to revert to say twelve and a half times Zibid over the next decade, uh, that'd be a bit of a, a bit of a bit of headwind. Uh, the other thing is that uh, you know Pepsi, again, great business with some fantastic brands. They make a lot of cash flow, and I'm I'm a cash flow guy, so that's generally where I <laughs> what I care about most. They make a lot of cash flow, beautiful, brilliant, we love it. The problem is they're spending more cash flow than they make and so for example over the past four quarters and q1 they were cash negative but that's fine they're always cash that is the dynamics of their cash flow cycle they're always negative in q1 i think the last time they weren't negative in q1 was like 2016 and then they were still that was operating cash flow positive slightly and then they were still negative on a free cash flow basis uh, but over the past four quarters uh, they produced about 5.6 billion in free cash flow they spent 6.3 billion on dividends so they're already—they've already blown it out the door. Uh, they spent another one point six billion on buybacks. They spent uh, just shy of a billion dollars in acquisitions. So that's about a three point two billion dollar hole they've had to fill in. And if you're wondering what they're filling it in with, the answer is debt. Um, you know, and uh, uh, 2022 for the full year, they get about a just, just shy of about a three billion dollar hole. They were actually slightly positive for 2021, so that's good, um, to the tune of uh, just shy of a billion dollars. Uh, 2020, six point four billion in cash generated, five and a half billion spent on dividends, two point one on buybacks, six point four billion on acquisitions, mainly Rockstar. Uh, so that's about a seven or eight billion dollar hole, I think, if my math is good. Year before the last year, 2019, before the pandemic, 5.6 billion cash generated, 5.3 billion spent on dividends, 3.1 on buybacks, 2.7 on acquisitions, mainly SodaStream. So they've been doing this for a while, where they're kind of overspending what they can generate. And again, it's fine to do that. You can, and a company the quality of Pepsi can probably do that for a long time, and probably find willing lenders to help them fill in that hole with some debt. But I'm gonna again return to Steins Law, Herb Steins Law, that which cannot continue will stop. So just just putting it out there for long-term thinkers on on Pepsi. You know what? I've got a few shares in an IRA.
0: You're not gonna rain on my parade. Oh, Pepsi's hit an all-time high. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Just just be aware. Just be aware. Well, thank you, thank you to you and, and your fellow Canadians for um, just boosting the, the salty snack consumption in the North American <laughs> No problem. We'll take that victory lap, too. Jim Kelly, it's always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. By the way, the brand-new episode of our premium podcast, Stock Advisor Roundtable, is now available on Spotify. Tom Gardner leads a conversation about ChatGPT, what it means for business, investing, and three stocks in particular. I put a link in the show notes for this episode, so when you're done listening to this, just click that link and check it out. Earlier this week, Bill Mann joined Allison Southwick and Robert Brokamp in the studio to talk about the new normals in a few areas of the investing world, starting with hybrid work.
2: If you're like me, chances are good that just about every day of your life, you're seeing an ad for Shen Yun, feeling an achy pain in a part of your body you didn't even know you had, and reading an article headline invoking the new normal. Extreme weather is the new normal. High inflation is the new normal. New normals are the new normal. So, we decided to bring Bill Mann, Analyst with The Motley Fool, to come on and talk about three new normals to see if he's buying the hype and what it could mean for investors up first in our three part series is remote work. This one's tricky because you'll see articles everywhere Forbes, New York Times, whatever, saying flexibility and remote work are the new normal. But counter to that are companies like Amazon, Capital One, Disney, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Google, Salesforce, Twitter, I could go on, all making employees come back to an office at least a few times a week. So working from wherever, whenever, is that the new normal, Bill? Nope. It
3: isn't. It isn't! I'm sorry. And, by the way, you said something really important there. I also think that the new normal, even for these companies, is not, you are in the office from 9 to 5 Monday to Friday. Or, in the case of Goldman, you're in the office from 6 to 11. Yeah. Don't worry
2: about it. <laughs> don't worry about it.
3: So, I think that, that the, the, the concept of the pre-pandemic in the office, I think that's gone. But, I think culture's culture really matters to businesses and efficiency matters to businesses and performance matters to business. And the performance is not how you, Robert Brokamp, are doing. It's how the business is doing. And I think that you know I think that remote work has been found by these companies to lower overall productivity. And ultimately the story is going to be this. People are saying, well, I'm just not going to come back into the office, I'll just leave. That's great. But it's very easy and that was a murderer's row of companies you you named. That was hundreds of thousands of employees. All they have to do is to make coming into the office a condition for the next person they hire. So there is so much that I think that is good about remote work. Obviously having that flexibility is great. But I don't think that employees ultimately will retain the power to determine for themselves if it is something that is actually harming the company, and I think in many cases it is.
4: Did you all see the video from uh, James Clark, the CEO of ClearLink? So this is a company. Out. sounds exciting. It is a company out in Utah that, it, it, as it recently as October, said you don't have to come in the office, and then they changed and said no, people who live within 50 miles have to come into the office. The video of his speech to the company went viral, and there are some reasons for why you would want to criticize him on this. But another thing he found out apparently was that 30 employees hadn't opened their laptops in the last month.
3: And that's just it, isn't it? I think that I think that that well, first of all, that's that's a little scary. scary. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute, let me let me let me stop and uh, put a pin in that part for a second. But I think I remote work. I think whatever we think about the positives, it lowers overall the trust function in a business, and it make it creates silos. Like if you think about in an office, like if Allison, as she is want to do, is doing something that you don't like, all you need to do is raise an eyebrow, right? And that's a conversation that has happened. It's incredibly efficient. Whereas if everyone is remote. You have to sit there and write out a memo, or you have to have a meeting, and so those, those are taxes on the productivity of the business, Hello? and I think ultimately efficiency for the business and that trust function. So that Allison knows that she's oh, you're always on the right track, but
2: I'm, I've never, never, you never see, that. I
3: called you out because I knew that was that was so absurd. <laughs> We went straight to absurdistan but it's but it's true that that conversations that happen that take 2 seconds when you're in person take a really long time when you are not and that is something that matters and I don't know who this guy is and how whether he's tracking everyone's laptop but I don't think you need to
2: Alright, so that was nice of you to pay me a compliment, as always, being right. And so, I'm going to repay <laughs> you, unfortunately, by saying, as elder statesmens of this company, do you feel that perhaps there is a generational difference here for being productive remotely versus not remotely? Or is it objectively, objectively, silos are broken down, there's better collaboration, you work more efficiently with people when you are in the same room? I know I have my own opinion, but of course I'm here to hear your opinion. Is it because you're too old? <laughs> I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry.
3: I told you it was the get off my lawn segment. <laughs> I knew we were going to get there. I, I don't. I don't think so because I think that probably the the I'm going to use the word prejudice about it being a function of being too old has to do with the belief that we can't handle technology like we are now the we are now the blinky twelve o'clock VCR generation that the generation just just younger than us has a better grasp of technology than we do, and maybe they do. But if you think about what a business is, there's your job. But then there's also what it, what else it is that you bring to the company, and that may be as simple as mentoring somebody who's younger, or just having those conversations and and sharing that knowledge. And so, yes, maybe they can work several types of technology better than we can, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the totality of their job. So, yes. I think that there actually is a little bit of a break in terms of what people want. I have noticed. So, uh my eldest child graduated from college this last year, which means that she went to college during COVID. And she and her generation, I guess her cohort, they desperately want to be in the office. They have seen what that is like in, you know, in an experience that everyone knows is better when you're in
2: person. So, as an investor, do you think that the difference between working remotely versus working in an office together will have such a material impact on the productivity and success of a company that you are actually going to consider that as part of an investing thesis or are we not there yet
3: i don't know that we're there yet i think that the that the big test out there will be airbnb because they're maybe the largest company that has very loudly said nobody's ever coming back to to an office and maybe that's the case that's the one to track i think it was interesting that uh you know that a year ago oh god and I hate bringing up Elon Musk in this context, but it's happening. Okay, let's. You know, I think this is a specific example, but there were a number of Twitter employees before he took over that made a bunch of demands, and they are now Twitter ex-employees, and so uh, it it. I think that there really is, as an investor, a test that is going on. I think you're seeing from the scoreboard, from the number of really large employers. And again, they're not necessarily saying, you have to be back in the office, chained to your desk from 9 o'clock on. They're saying, you need to come in from time to time because it is more effective. And I think that that is happening because they have seen the research. And they have seen the impact on their business over the last three years.
2: All right. So the new normal for remote work—not so remote, according to Bill Mann. What's your closing thoughts here on remote work, the future of work? Again, it's not
3: an on-off switch. We're not talking about most companies aren't talking about having people back into the office all the time, and so I think that companies like Zoom have really proven to us that we do have much more capability to do things remote than we did before and so i mean what a blessing that Zoom was as far along as it was when the pandemic happened because it it truly in some ways i guarantee you it saved a bunch of companies so the
4: other the other side of that is what happened to Skype like talk about an example of, of a company that was positioned to take advantage of something and it just didn't work. It just didn't work.
2: Because with Zoom, remember, it just works. Yeah. That was our phrase. Yeah, it's yeah, true. It
3: just works. Yeah, it that's it's exactly right and you know, we could have a technological conversation that technology exists and it is a force multiplier for companies, but I do not believe that many of the functions in in companies. And I do think it's a function-by-function function basis. Like sales staff, I don't know that they need to be in offices. They weren't before. They probably aren't going to need to come back. But there are certain collaborative components of almost every business where I think that the impediments to doing that remotely are going to prove to be too high.
4: I'll just add that I think it's going to continue for a while for a couple of reasons. First of all, there were some companies that were doing it already before the pandemic, like stock research companies that I knew of, because they wanted to be able to hire the best people in the world, not just the best people in their city. So they were willing to do that. And then the other aspect is, Employees still want it, and while the unemployment rate is low, it's going to continue. There was a study from McKinsey that said that people said chose remote work as the number three reason behind looking for a new job, behind higher pay and better career opportunities. And while unemployment is low and, and employers are desperate for workers, they're going to have to offer this to someone.